0: This is Heather Meckes, Director of Discipleship at CRC, and this is our podcast. Thank you for joining us today. We hope this inspires you, encourages you, and allows you to see how God is moving in and around you. If you would like to check out more resources, go to coopersvillereform.com. Enjoy the message. Enjoy to worship with you all this morning and, uh, that, that treasured song is a song that I have been hearing every morning when I wake up at, at my house and in my head and in my dreams and watching the news. And I mean, every time I mean, every, every day out of the last sec, seven or six days, rather, I have heard that song and what a beautiful song it is. Has anyone ever um, done the right thing, but received a less than favorable result afterwards. You've done the right thing, but the result for doing the right thing didn't exactly equate to what you thought it would equate to. Uh, Over a decade ago, probably about 14 years ago or so, I had to report a coworker of mine to my boss for elder abuse. Uh, I witnessed this lady, this coworker, be extremely rough, to say the least, uh, with a 75-pound-year-old, 90-year-old woman with dementia. And it literally made me sick to my stomach at about 19 years old or so. I spoke up in the moment, I confronted the woman, and I also went to my supervisor and shared what had happened, what I had witnessed. And unfortunately, the lady continued working for the organization for some time after the abuse, and I was isolated amongst my coworkers as a result. I looked like the snitch in the group. And this lady had seniority over me, so in a sense, I still had to answer to her, which was a lose-lose-lose situation for me. It was horrible. Unfortunately, doing the right thing doesn't always come with a favorable result immediately. Standing for what is right and doing the right thing doesn't always equate to the outcome that you were hoping for in the here and now. As we work our way through this series in Esther, we're going to see that Mordecai is in a similar position. He does what is right And it doesn't exactly equate to what he hoped that it would equate to. It actually turned out to be the exact opposite of what he had hoped for. And so we've been working our way through the book of Esther. We're gonna be focusing on primarily Esther chapter 3 this morning. We hope if you've been with us uh, any number of weeks, we started Esther two weeks prior to Father's Day, and I think we'll have another two weeks left of Esther. Uh, We hope that this has been a blessing to you. Just a little bit of a recap to where we are coming into today. So uh, Esther 1 kind of highlights this king. He's a historic king. This is real. This is in the history books. This isn't make-believe, fairy tale, fable type stuff. This is a real king. His name is King Xerxes. He ruled over the Persian Empire and all 127 provinces within the Persian empire, he was at this particular time and juncture in history, the most influential man, the most powerful man, and as we can see here in this book, possibly the most wicked man in all of history at this time. And he has a king and he ends up, uh, or he has a queen rather, and he ends up divorcing his queen, his wife, Queen Vashti, because after his six-month drunken splendor, uh, where he wants Queen Vashti to come and parade herself for the troops and what is quite possibly just her royal crown and nothing else, completely nude, uh, she says to him a word that he's not used to hearing in all of his life, no, no, I'm not going to do that. And so he demotes her, divorces her, demeans her. And afterwards, some years later, some young fellows had a great idea that the king would have a Persian bachelor and they would send hundreds of young virgins uh, to the citadel of Susa and that they would then compete for queen, essentially. And that involved, horrible things that you would never, ever, 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 want your young daughter to compete in. And Esther was a part of that, and after four years, Esther became the queen and won the favor of King Xerxes. And at this point, she has not yet shared her national heritage, she has not shared who she is as the people of God, she is a Jew you okay? Sometimes when you have a VBS, you know, things just start going wild up here. We all good? So we're going to be in Esther 2, 19 through 23, and then we're going to move into Esther 3, verses 1 and 2. Let us read. We'll have the words on the screen for you. When the virgins were assembled a second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. So Mordecai, and that's essentially the father of Esther. Esther's biological mother and father had passed away some time ago, and Mordecai uh, was the guardian of Esther. And he's at this king's gate quite frequently. He most likely held a, uh, a role in uh, Affluent, somewhat influential role in the land at this time, but it was probably a lower level role. Verse 20, but Esther had kept secret her family background and nationally, just as Mordecai told her to do, for she continued to follow Mordecai's instructions as she had done when he was bringing her up. During the time Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate Bichthana and Teresh, two of the king's officers who guarded the doorway, became angry and conspired to assassinate King Xerxes. So you have two officials aspiring to kill the most influential man in all the world. But Mordecai, who's within an earshot right there at the king's gate, ends up finding out about this he found out about the plot and told Queen Esther, who in turn reported it to the king, giving credit to Mordecai. And when the report was investigated and found to be true, the two officials were impaled on poles. It's important to note, um, it was actually around this time, some four or 500 years BC, prior to the incarnation of Jesus Christ, where crucifixion was invented. And crucifixion was actually invented by the Persians. I believe we talked about it on Good Friday that the Persians invented crucifixion, but it's actually the Romans who perfected it and made it even more gruesome and worse. All this was recorded in the books of the Annals in the presence of the king. So Mordecai ends up saving the life of King Xerxes essentially by sharing this plot to kill him by two high-level officials. Verse, uh, verse one in chapter three continues. After these events, King Xerxes honored Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, elevating him and giving him a seat of honor higher than that of all the other nobles. All the royal officials at the king's gate knelt down and paid honor to Haman for the king had commanded this concerning him, but Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor. Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor. What the Lord was putting on my heart for this message in relation to this text this morning were these four words. Hills to die on, hills to die on. Here's a little bit about Haman, because you're just reading this, you're like, what's all of this, what what is all of this? We learned in verses five and six in chapter two that Mordecai was a descendant of King Saul, right? So Mordecai, descendant of King Saul, great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfather of his or so, some 400, 500 years prior. Now what we just found out is Haman this official who is now second in command, he's essentially the vice president to King Xerxes, was elevated to this position. And it says here in the text in chapter three of Esther that Haman was an Agagite, was an Agagite. He was a descendant of King Agag and King Agag was the king of the Amalekites during the time of Saul. The descendants of the Amalekites, you know, biblical history, they were constantly at war with the Israelites. One of the more famous battles is found in Exodus 17 when the Israelites were winning only as long as Moses kept his staff raised in the air. But when, because of fatigue, he let his staff drop, the Amalekites would then get the upper hand until finally Joshua and Caleb have Moses sit on a rock and they take each arm and they hold it up for him. Then later we see in first Samuel 15, we see another connect direction or connect a direct connection. It, you may remember this story. King Saul is sent to attack the Amalekites and put them all to death, from the oldest to the youngest, including all the animals. And King Saul is instructed by the Lord to not take any of the plunder, to not take anything for himself but to let it all go. King Saul, however, chooses not to obey God. Instead, he takes the best animals for himself, and he reckons doing that by saying he's going to sacrifice them all to the Lord. But aside from the animals, King Saul allows the king of the Amalekites to live, King Agag. He allows them to live when the Lord said, do not do that. Who was the king then? That was King Agag. That was this great 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 grandfather of Haman. Then the prophet Samuel comes and confronts Saul in his sin. And then Samuel goes and kills King Agag himself. But what we find out is some of Agag's children must have escaped because some 600 years later, we come across this Haman who is an Agagite. So the people were not completely eradicated. And you may be thinking right now, John, why in the world would God have an entire people killed? That's often a question that Bible skeptics have. Why would God allow such a thing? You must understand the Amalekites, the Agagites were so desperately sick twisted in evil, that they wanted the people of God, all of them, they wanted all of them eradicated. They wanted a full genocide on the people of God, the Israelites. And so God is calling up and raising up his people to go and fight against these enemies of not simply Israelites, but they're enemies of God. And so oftentimes we ask like, why would God allow such a thing God is sparing his people. And sometimes that gets bloody and twisted and wild and crazy, but God is sparing his people. And so that's where Haman comes from. So there's hundreds of years, centuries, of national hatred between the Agagites and the Israelites. And so the author here in Esther 3 is saying, look at there's a plot twist. Mordecai doing the right thing, sometime later ends up causing Haman and Agagite to be in authority over him now. And there's almost like this, uh-oh, uh-oh moment. Actually, when they would read this in ancient Israel, they would read this story and you would hear the people of Israel as someone was reading it start to boo when Haman's name was was spoken. Kind of like what I'll be doing to the lions when the Niners play the lions opening week here in a a month or a couple months or so. uh, I will be booing the lions like the Israelites boo Haman. So put yourself in Mordecai's shoes. You just saved the king's life. You spared him his life, and he knows that you spared his life because Esther said and gave credit to her guardian dad that Mordecai, my guardian, spared your life as the details had come out. And what ends up happening, Xerxes decides to inflate increase the authority of this Agagite, Haman. And the king doesn't just promote Haman, but Haman is elevated above all the other nobles, second in command. Haman is rewarded and Mordecai is essentially forgotten, it seems like. You'd think you would get a bronze star or something for that act of bravery by Mordecai? Nothing the author shares nothing happened to Mordecai for his good act. And here's what ends up happening. Xerxes says people should bow to Haman. Or yeah, Xerxes says people should bow to Haman and Mordecai is saying, no. This is a hill I'm willing to die on. I will not bow to Haman. I will not bow to him. I do not wanna commend Mordecai in this position. I wanna be clear. The Greek historian Herodotus says this, describes how Persians of different social levels normally greeted each other. If they were on the same social level in Persia, if you're on the same social level, y'all are the same, you'd kiss each other on the lips. This must've been pre-COVID, right? You know, That's how you'd greet each other, kiss on the lips. Can't do that today. Husbands, you try that to another woman, and it's gonna be a problem, right? So they would kiss each other on the lips. Now, if you were slightly under the person on the social level, you would then kiss on the cheeks. But if you were far under the person, and they ranked that much higher than you, you would bow to them. That was a normal greeting, and we still see this in Asian cultures today, a bow. And Haman is saying, I'm not bowing. Everyone else, bowing. Haman, tiptoeing. I don't know like, what that looked like, but Haman is refusing, he's anti-bow at this point. He's willing to die on the hill of bowing. Not bowing, considering him to be a god, but bowing just as a normal, as, as we would salute a soldier. Or a lower-ranking soldier would salute a higher-ranking soldier. Mordecai saying, I'm not doing that. My question this morning that was on my heart is, what are some hills that you're willing to die on? What are some hills that you're willing to die on? From my perspective, Christians too often choose the wrong hills to die on. Too often, we we make mountains out of molehills. Mordecai, the guardian father of Esther, think about this, everyone. Mordecai allows his teenage daughter, she was quite possibly a teenage girl, to go and be a part of a Persian bachelor with maybe 400 other virgins in competition to win the king's favor by having sex with him. He says, that's all right. There's no sign here in the text of Mordecai saying, no, honey, I'm gonna fight for you, and that's wrong, that's evil, that's against the scriptures. No sign of that. Mordecai's saying, not gonna die on that hill. That's all right. Now dads, just think of that for a moment. Dads of daughters, you think that would be a hill you'd be willing to die on? You're darn right. All right, get the wood, get the knife, start the fire because there's going to be a tall lanky offering on that hill if that's my daughter. I'm dying on that hill. My daughter's not going over my dead body. Is she going to something like that? To the most wicked and vile man in all of history up until this point, but not Mordecai. Mordecai says, nah, that's okay, but I'm not bowing. That's where I cross the line. Seems a little weird, doesn't it? Seems a bit backwards. Here's the reality. When we die on the wrong hills, we tend to lose credibility as the people of God. We can lose relationships. When we turn mountains out of molehills in an effort to display our faith and oftentimes in our pride, we can end up doing more harm than good. Now hear me out. Everyone has different hills that they're willing to die on. That's good, that's fair, that's right. I'm not going to tell you what hills you should and shouldn't die on, but what I wanna challenge you with is this. Are you allowing non-essential issues to work against your witness To a lost world. I got a slide uh, here this morning. Are are you allowing non essential issues to work against your witness to a lost world? And then I added this quote at the bottom uh, from a man named Rupertus. I'm not even going to try to share his last name, 17th century German theologian. Uh, Oftentimes, this quote at the bottom is attributed to St. Augustine or St. Augustine, um, but it's It's actually found uh, by many to to be from this Rupertus fella in the 17th century. He says this, in essentials, unity. That means that we are to unify in the highest level on the essential matters. But he says in non-essentials we should have freedom, liberty, in the non-essentials. In all things, charity. So Regardless, we're to have love in all things. And oftentimes, I see us missing the mark on that very important quote, which I think helps to demonstrate what a missional church and a missional person ought to be. So here's what I've done. With this incident of Mordecai refusing to bow, I think it allows us to see where we personally stand on absolutes, convictions, and preferences. And it may help us to think like this as a family uh, a little bit better. So I'm going to uh, share this next slide and we're gonna have a bit of a discussion on this. So absolutes, these are hills to die on. What are your hills to die on as a Christian? What are your non-negotiables? What are your essentials? Those are your hills to die on. For Mordecai, it was bowing in a sign of respect to someone who he could not stand and a people that he could not stand. Now, what are your convictions? Convictions are hills we'll have discussion on. I'll share a little bit about each one. And then what are your preferences? And, and I like to call these hills that we're not gonna lose sleep on. They're not that big of a deal. I'm not losing sleep on a preference. Not that big of a deal. For me, when I was dating Helen, I'll give you an example here, homeschooling our future child or children, um, I wanted to be clear to her upfront when we were dating, that was an absolute for me. I was like, we need to homeschool. I really feel strongly about this, so if we're going to go further in this relationship, I just wanna make sure we're on the same page here and we're okay with this. And so it was, man, we're gonna homeschool. But I'll be honest, over time, That quickly changed for me. Over time, I started to work within the school district through Youth for Christ, started to get to know teachers and administration from the public school around where we live. And I thought to myself, you know what? That's no longer an absolute for me. And today, that hill that I was willing to die on changed because I humbly thought, I think the Lord may be calling us to send Sienna to public school. And guess where that ends up being? Here in Coopersville. She goes to the Coopersville preschool. And so that was one time for me a hill to die on. Then it turned to a conviction. And then I completely flopped on it. Flip-flopped. You can look at this also through spiritual lenses. For instance, some of my absolutes biblically are the life, the death, and the bodily resurrection of Jesus. The sinless nature of Jesus that he was indeed sinless. I'm not budging on that. That's, an, that's the highest level that I'll die on. So someone may say, well, I wanna be a part of your church. I'd, I'd love to be a member here, but ah, I don't believe in the bodily resurrection of Jesus. We'd say, sorry, that's an essential. That's an essential to us. That is core to the Christian faith. That's a hill that we're willing to die on. And as an individual, I'm willing to die on that hill. The Holy Spirit indwelling every believer. I'm dying on that hill. That's an absolute for me spiritually, biblically. Convictions, baptism, the mode of baptism, right? Do we sprinkle, do we immerse? We've done both here. What's that? To me, that's a conviction. We have discussions on that, sometimes lively debate, right, Steve? And we'll have lively debate on baptism, but we're not gonna split hairs over that. We know people who love God are infant Baptists and believer Baptists. They, they, they go both ways on this and they have scriptural framework on both ends. We choose unity in these matters. We choose liberty. We choose freedom in these matters. Those are convictions. What, what are some of your convictions? And preferences. Here, here's a good one I thought would be fair. Stage lights. preference, right? It's more of a preference for me. We can worship out in a tent and I'd be good with it. Doesn't matter. But because it holds a greater importance for those who we seek to reach in regarding the quality of our online ministry, it has importance. It does have a certain level of importance, but it's certainly not something I'm going to lose sleep on. And you shouldn't either, right? Oh Stage lights, oh, those kids with those, oh my goodness. We don't lose sleep on that as the people of God. It's a preference, lowest level. For Mordecai, when it came to paying respect to an Agagite who may have been promoted to a position that he would have liked, he said, that's an absolute for me. I'm not bowing, I'm not budging, and I'm dying on this hill. I'm not convinced that was a wise decision. And so I ask you this morning, one last time, what hills are you willing to die on? And I want you this week to prayerfully consider what those hills are and if they're worthy of your blood. Okay? And you think, is this a hill that Jesus would die on? It's a fair thought. Let's move forward and we'll move quick here. Esther three, three through six, the story continues. Then the royal officials at the king's gate asked Mordecai, why do you disobey the king's command? Listen to this, listen to this language. Day after day, they spoke to him. It sounds like Everyone else is trying to be reasonable in this matter, but Mordecai. Day after day, these officials would speak to Mordecai, man, what's going on? Mordecai, would you just bow? You're gonna get yourself killed. Mordecai, what's going on? They spoke to him, but he refused to comply. Therefore, they told Haman about it to see whether Mordecai's behavior would be tolerated, for he had told them, He was a Jew. Remember up until this point, he has hidden his nationality. He has hidden who he was. He has hidden that he is Yahweh's. He's hidden that and he's told Esther to hide that as well. In verse five, when Haman saw that Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor, Haman was enraged, continuing. Yet having learned who Mordecai's people were, he scorned the idea of killing only Mordecai. Haman could have easily just killed Mordecai. It had been said and done. It had been all done. Instead, Haman looked for a way to destroy all of Mordecai's people, the Jews, throughout the whole kingdom of Xerxes. My question on this is, do you have a religious card or a committed life? You just pull out the religious card or, or do you have a committed life to Christ? This whole time Mordecai has instructed Esther to keep her nationality a secret, but when he finds himself in hot water, all of a sudden, when it's convenient for him, he says, oh, the reason why I won't bow is because I'm a Jew. He wouldn't share that before. He told Esther, instructed her, do not share that you're a Jew, but all of a sudden, he's in hot water for not bowing, and now he's sharing that he's a Jew. Tough guy Mordecai is not going to stand up, is now going to stand up to Haman the hitman, and it ends up putting at risk what was likely hundreds of thousands, quite possibly millions of Jews. He ends up putting millions of Jews at risk because of his decision to not bow, and for him to pull his religious card out at the least opportune time. If there was ever a time to hide your identity, that was probably the time to keep your identity hidden. When a power-hungry Agagid is having his servants ask you why you won't pay homage, but instead he decides to put his entire people at risk in the Persian Empire, which one scholar says could be up to 15 million Jews living in ancient Persia at this time, 15 million Jews. My question is, how how many people pull their religious cards only when it's convenient? How many of us like to just pull our religious cards when it's convenient? If you've ever watched Cops, you'll see this all the time, right? Some idiot steals the TV, hits his wife, they end up arresting him, they find methamphetamine on him. And uh, they have him handcuffed and all of a sudden he's like, but I'm a good guy. I'm a Christian. I went to Sunday school. I love God. Father, would you forgive me just this once? All of a sudden when he's in hot water, he's all of a sudden a good guy. He's got meth on him. He stole a TV and he's hitting his wife. It's a good time to pull out your religious card. What kind of denomination are you from? The hypocritical kind. That's the type I'm from. Yeah, we're a growing denomination out here in America. Uh, That's not the time in which you're you're to call and, and say, I'm a Christian. Why don't you live a committed life? When you're a believer and you're living a committed life, you don't need to pull a religious card. That thing is tattooed to your heart. People know you're a Christian. They look at the way you live. They look at the way you act. They look at the way in which you handle other people. They look at the way in which you work. They look at your life and people will know you're not living a contradicted life, but you're living a committed life. But when people are living a contradicted life, when God is your savior only when times are bad, that's extremely dangerous. Do you realize how free it is as a believer to live a committed life? It's one of the greatest things I love about Christianity. That I do not have to change who I am around other people. That I can be who I am and who God created me to be around all people all the time. That is one of the most beautiful, freeing, liberating truths that I find in Christ. That I don't have to change who I am around this group and then change who I am around this group and change who I am around this group. And I have to do all that to make God happy. God says... You are my beloved son. I died for you. You be who I called you to be, even when it's not convenient, even when it could cost you something. You be who I called you to be. That's a liberating truth that I wish more believers, more church-going people would live by. We don't put our religious self on to come to church, take our religious self off. We're another person outside of church. We're one way inside of church. When we're in hot water, all of a sudden we're a religious person again we're looking up to God saying, why God? Just live a committed life. Be who you are, don't hide who you are. Back to the story and here's where we'll leave off for next week. Vice President Haman, actually, in two weeks. Vice President Haman goes to King Xerxes after years of Mordecai refusing to bow. So after years of Mordecai refusing to to bow, Haman goes to Xerxes, and here's his idea. His anger is building up, and he approaches King Xerxes, and he essentially says, there's a people group amongst us that is a problem. He doesn't say their names according to the text. He doesn't say Jews. He says, there's a people group amongst us where there's a problem. They won't obey your laws, king. But it's not worthy of your time, king. Let me deal with your light work. I'll handle it. And the king agrees. The plot thickens and letters are sent out to 127 provinces with an order to destroy, kill, and annihilate all of the Jews. Young, old, women, children, elderly, infant. Kill every Jew in Persia on one particular day of the year. Soldiers coming in and kicking doors down, annihilating the Jewish people in ancient Persia. There's this order that is sent out. And here's what it says in Esther 3.15, and then we'll leave off here. The couriers went out, spurred on by the king's command, and the edict was issued in the citadel, in the capital of Susa. The king and Haman sat down to drink, because that's what wicked men do when they're handling business that affects other people negatively, but it's good for them and it could be good for the land. They just sit down, have a drink, cheers to that. You see people do this today in business. They just uh, took advantage of a bunch of people or maybe a specific family. They'll sit down, cheers, have a drink, have a beverage, cheers to our success on the backs of other people. But then here's what it says. But the city of Susa, upon receiving this edict, when they found out, we're gonna kill all the Jews, the Jewish people, our neighbors? says the city of Susa was bewildered. In the NASB, I wrote this down. It, it, it translates that they were thrown into confusion. The city of Susa was thrown into confusion. Why? Because even though the people of God were not really in the same, in the position that God wanted them to be in. They should have been in Israel, they should have been in Jerusalem, worshiping in the temple and following God's laws. They were not, they were in a compromised state, they were in a compromised land. Even though they were not in the right place, the city, the land, they started to love these people. They said, these are good people. They follow your laws. They're my neighbors, they mow their grass. They're good people. And so the town, the city, the the area was bewildered. Why would we kill them? And so there's this stirring happening at the end of Esther 3, but there's still no mention of God. There's just an evil king, an evil Haman, a compromised Mordecai, and a quiet Esther. We'll see more about her in chapter four. Here's what I wanna leave us with. I pray if you feel compromised and quieted, due to decisions that you have made, maybe to your fault. You would know that God's forgiveness and grace is near to you. What's so powerful about this story to me is God doesn't simply give up on Mordecai. Like you idiot, what are you doing? Why wouldn't you just bow? You're putting all of my people at risk, some possibly millions of Jews. You're putting them at risk because you won't just Just bow. Why? God does not give up on Mordecai. Esther, what are you doing? Going into this Persian bachelor, sleeping with the king. He's a pagan. He's an evil man. What are you doing? Doesn't give up on Esther. God does not turn his back on his people. And I hope you would know that. Maybe after years and years and years of disobedience, of just pulling a religious card, not living a committed life, dying on the wrong hills perhaps, you would know that God's not giving up on you either, that God loves you, that God is gracious to you, that his hand is not so short, his arm is not so short that it cannot come down and reach and save you. That you would understand that maybe you've been dying on the wrong hills Maybe you have not lived a committed life. Maybe you've just been pulling the religious card all of your life. It is not too late. And God's grace is so big, so vast, so great that it's not too late for you. We're gonna find out that he's not done with Mordecai and he's not done with Esther. And I hope you know this morning that God is not done with you either. Let us pray. Father, as we consider this very difficult to interpret book that many in uh, scholarly circles have said, uh, we want this taking out, taken out of the Bible. We don't really know what to do with the book of Esther. God, you're not mentioned. Uh, God, th- there's no signs of worship mentioned in this book, but it's so great to see that despite you not being mentioned, Father, Your hand is all over this. Your sovereignty is on display through evil men and through contradictions, like Mordecai, I believe. And so, Father, I pray if we are living in a contradicted state, we're not living in a committed state maybe right now, I pray, Father, that you would grip our heart, lead us to conviction, and thus lead us to repentance, that we would be the people who you are calling us to be your people living on mission for you and living for your glory. Father, we love you and we thank you. It is in the mighty name of Jesus Christ that we pray, amen. Thank you, Pastor John.